0: Do you have what it takes to sneak in and then out again? Well, let's find out with F-19 Stealth Fighter this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast.
1: So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join.
0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode number 101 of the Upper Memory Block podcast. I'm your host Joe and I'm back with you once again to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So yeah, it's been a little over, well, more than a month, but uh, you know, a little bit off schedule, Uh, but I am back and we're talking about stuff and uh, I'm happy. Yeah, things got a little crazy. Uh, I know kind of around episode 100 uh i sort of set up a monthly schedule and i was aiming sort of for yeah, like last week of the month well you know we're into the first week of of may so a little bit late but no no big deal things have been uh, like i said things things were a little nuts at work and uh baby stuff and tiredness and blah 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 but we don't need to uh to talk about that spring is here it's nice outside i've gone for two bike rides you know a little short kind of loops around uh around my area in, in preparation for what will probably be, uh, hopefully now that things are a little more settled down with, uh, with the um baby who's, who's doing awesome by the way. Uh, you know, hopefully a, a, a bike filled, uh, bike filled, uh, summer spring and summer and, and all that noise. But, um, Anyways, weather, well, weather's not great now. It's horribly, torrentially downpouring outside, so hopefully my internet holds up. But, uh, you know, we've got a really big show, and I think we should probably just get right to it. Okay, so to begin, we have an email from Ben. And Ben writes, hi, Joe. I just started listening to your podcast after I discovered a gameplay video you did of Star Trek The Next Generation, a final Unity that you did recently. I'm a big Star Trek fan, and I've been trying to catch up on some of the games I missed out on while growing up with a Macintosh. I played a lot of Mist and Riven uh, while searching for gameplay videos of it before I loaded it up in DOSBox. Uh, I came across your video, and it led me to your show. I'm about halfway through your inaugural episode about Sam and Max, and I'm really enjoying it. I'm an adventure game junkie and an old soul, also a fellow Canadian. So I love hearing in-depth conversations about some of the ones I've enjoyed. Looking forward to going through your catalog. Well, thank you, Ben. Um yeah, you know, uh I I'm trying as as much as I can to sort of um do more stuff on YouTube because I, I do find, and you know, this is kind of deep, you know, inside baseball podcaster-y stuff. Um, you know, obviously the the show, the audio show is my primary sort of uh you know, my primary focus, but, but I do find that putting stuff out on, on YouTube. So I try, you know, putting out some, some gameplay videos. I'm, I'm not a, a let's player by any means. I don't complete things <laughs> very well, but, uh, you know, the, the research sessions, some of the research sessions that I do for, uh, for the show, you know, I put up on YouTube and then those, you know, they, 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 do pretty well. Uh, especially I think I've talked about it before my, my one stream or, you know, research video on, um, spycraft. Was actually uh, one of my highest-rated videos. I think it has something like two thousand views, which, which for me is like you know four times more, if not more, than uh, than what my videos usually get. And yeah, I had a lot of fun doing uh, the little chunk of uh, a final Unity that I did do. And I I should probably take this opportunity to uh, to point out another little side project that uh, I did. Uh, Trolls, a uh, good friend, friend of the show. Trolls, the Space Quest Historian, uh, invited me to do a uh, kind of a a cooperative let's play commentary of A Final Unity. And I believe the first three episodes of that are already out. You can go uh, check out his YouTube channel over at Space Quest Historian. And I also added, I believe, I believe all of them but if not then at least the first two to a playlist on my youtube channel so trolls basically played through uh played through the game or at least so far he's played through half the game and we're going to do the other half uh you know in the in the relatively near future just let me know when you're available trolls when you want to do it and um yeah he played through the game without commentary and then we use this cool service where we could sync i think it's called sync video or something like that or sync vid and uh we both basically just sat on uh on skype and watch the video together and, uh, made, uh, entertaining commentary over, over trolls playing the game. So, um, you know, if you want more of, of me and, and, you know, the, the, charming trolls, Plimert uh, <laughs> playing Star Trek, the next generation of final unity, go check that out. So thanks again for that. Ben, uh, next up, we have an email from person whose name I didn't write down. So I'm a bad person, but I will, um, I'll go check on that later. But anyways, uh, the email uh, goes, Hey Joe, just discovered your podcast recently and wanted to share a GK story with you. Great podcast on that game. By the way, I played GK1 back in high school, maybe around 1995. I think it is the best adventure game ever made and I'm a big adventure game fan. I remember really cherishing the story, which I recall being quite chilling in parts. But I think what really appealed to me was the New Orleans setting. The game sparked a fleeting interest for me in the myths, mysteries, and stories surrounding the city, voodoo, and uh, the supernatural feeling surrounding it all. I read everything New Orleans that I could get my hands on for a few months after completing the game. I desperately wanted to travel there, but my family wasn't much on vacationing, so we rarely left Indiana. A few years ago, GK was the furthest thing from my mind as my soon-to-be wife and I were discussing wedding plans we had decided to elope, but we didn't know where to elope to when she threw out the idea of New Orleans. Of course, New Orleans! Neither of us had ever been, and I was overcome with memories of GK and my long-past obsession with the city. Well, we eloped there in September of 2015 and had a blast. It was amazing just how my memories of the game were really refreshed by actually being there. I feel this is testament to Jensen's incredible writing and the brilliant art of the game. Everything from Jackson Square to Marie Laveau's to uh, the city cemeteries. It was so cool to sort of step into the world of one of my favorite old video games. Uh, we're going back in June. I want to see if I can convince my wife to play through GK Sins uh, with me before we go. She's not a video gamer, but she loves a good story. Thanks for sharing the GK story. Well, thank you so much. And um, yeah, you know, I i think I, I i replied to this email when it came in because this is honestly the same uh, the same feeling that I came away with after playing Gabriel Knight, you know, new Orleans, at least, you know, until you, you head off to Germany, new Orleans is, is very much a part of, of Gabriel Knight and a part of the kind of mythos and, and, and atmosphere of that game, you know, and not only from, from the perspective of, well, there's real places from new Orleans that are, you know, obviously pretty faithfully, uh, you know re- reconstituted re- re- recreated uh in the art and in the environments and the backgrounds and all that but you know the game really does have kind of a very new orleansy vibe you know d- despite tim curry's pretty poor accent <laughs> but um and you know i i was also became quite obsessed with with new orleans especially the french quarter and you know learning about you know the the history of new orleans especially for me growing up in in quebec you know kind of immersed in uh in the the, the quebec french culture and you know knowing that a lot of uh you know stuff from from new orleans kind of came out of of the same the same roots you know it, there there's a bit more of a familiarity uh for me obviously you know the 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 french culture down in in around new orleans uh took a very divergent path, but you know, I, I still have not unfortunately had the opportunity to get down there, but it, it is one of those places that's still sort of on my list. So, you know, it really did the, this email really did resonate uh, with me as well. And, you know, speaking about kind of these, um, Pat, you know, backgrounds and stuff. Uh, I'd actually be interested, interested to hear what my buddy Ben Chandler has to say about the backgrounds in, uh, in Gabriel Knight. He's been doing, these really, really great in-depth studies on, uh, you know, backgrounds specifically, uh, initially from full throttle, but he's been talking about a lot of other ones of late too. And actually recently, I think in the past day or two, I was it yesterday might even have been yesterday, uh, put out a really cool, published a cool article on PC gamer where he, he ran down 10 of the, uh, 10 of his favorite adventure game backgrounds with some very, um, you know, appropriately Ben Chandler esque kind of deep observations about them. So you can go check that out. Uh, if I remember to do it after I'm done recording the show, I'll link it in the show notes, but if not just, uh, it's on his Twitter feed and you know, you could probably Google, uh, Ben Chandler backgrounds, PC gamer or something like that. And, and they'll come up. So thank you, uh, emailer whose name I didn't write down, I think for the first time in the history of the show. And of course, if you guys have anything to say about, um, any other shows uh, that uh, I've covered or any games you want to talk about or any cool memories that you have that aren't necessarily related to uh, the the game I'm talking about in the current episode, feel free to uh, drop me a line and I will include them at the beginning as I always do. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Overview. Okay. On to the main event. This time around, we're going to dive back into uh, the the thing. I know I sort of covered a Microprose game, Microprose-esque game last time and that it was published by Microprose. But this time, we're going to get back into the thing that Microprose is known for. Um, and that is a flight simulator. Uh, we're talking about, I guess we can call it the Stealth Fighter series. It doesn't really have a an overarching uh, name. Now this is a bit different from uh, most game series I discuss, but we'll get into that, you know, a bit bit later on. For the time being, suffice it to say that this Stealth Fighter series consists of two games. Uh, The first is F-19 Stealth Fighter, which was released in the year 1988. Okay, let's talk genre. We're back at one of my personal favorites, the Combat Flight Simulator. In a combat flight simulator, you take control of uh, a single or a variety of aircraft, usually from uh, eh, from a specific time period, and uh, you pilot it through a series of missions either directly based on or at least tangentially inspired by real-world conflicts. Uh, combat flight simulators come in a variety of levels of realism, from uh, the more action-focused arcade style up to the very complex and true to life end of the study simulation. Now, many flight simulators allow for uh, adjustment of realism options, which uh, allow players of any skill level to enjoy, uh, enjoy the game. In addition to focusing on a single time period, the game we are covering this week also focuses on one single aircraft. Now, this is known as a study simulation. The focus on a single plane Allows for a deeper and more complex, uh, you know, reproduction of that plane's functioning, a more complex simulation, if you will. Uh, you'll tend to find study simulations of more modern aircraft, since you know, as time and technology, uh, you know, aviation technology progress, each plane's systems become more uh, unique and more specific. So you know, um, a World War One combat flight sim, you know, like, like I've covered in the past with like Red Baron and things like that, that lends itself better to a survey simulation due to the comparative simplicity of planes of that era, you know, like one plane aside from, uh, you know, aside from different performance characteristics, in general, all planes of the era were pretty much controlled in a similar way. Now, when you get into modern times, the story is very different. As with other types of flight simulations, a variety of control methods are generally supported, though the ideal tends to be the venerable old joystick. As we get into more modern flight simulators, support for additional specialized input devices like throttles, rudder pedals, even like breakout instrument panels and things like that also make an appearance. Uh, Regardless of of, where you're at, your task tends to be the same in most combat flight simulators. You create a pilot you take that pilot through a career, potentially earning promotions and awards, while accomplishing missions in whatever conflict your game places you in. Now, there may be a story, there may not be. In the end, the focus of a combat flight sim is exactly what the name describes, the simulation of flying in combat.
1: All
0: right, story time. So on the story front are definitely a little bit light, at least from a narrative perspective. F-19 Stealth Fighter allows you to fly missions in any of four theaters of conflict. Libya, the Persian Gulf, the North Cape and central europe now for each of these regions the games manual provides us with all the historical context and background that we need to get into things Uh, we get details about the politics of the region what military forces occupy the area uh, information about geography and how it plays uh, a role in the conflict if we take the training scenario of Libya, for example, uh, we learn the country is ruled by Colonel Muammar al-Qaddafi, uh, who uh, deposed the king by coup in the year of 1969. Uh, as an oil-rich nation, we will be facing well-equipped Soviet-armed and trained military forces in addition to uh, you know Libya hosting training camps for various uh, terrorist groups. Now, geographically, Libya is a desert nation with a mountain range along the coast that affects radar ranges in the area. A more isolated mountain range exists deep in the desert, opposite what the manual refers to as Great Sand Seas. Now, the game also offers us the option of three levels of conflict, Cold War, Limited War, and Conventional War. We'll get into what each of these means uh, you know, in a gameplay context, but for now, suffice it to say that choosing a conflict level sort of sets the stage for you each conflict region has a sort of situational roll-up for each of these conflict levels as well. Again, taking Libya as the example, in a Cold War, most of your missions will be focused on suppressing Libyan-backed terrorist encampments and limited strikes against Libyan military targets in retaliation for support of these terrorist groups. In limited war... Libya may be probing their borders, uh, you know, clashing with much more militarily powerful U.S. allies uh, like Egypt, or possibly attempting an invasion of France-allied Chad. In full conventional war, Libya would serve as a base for Russian aircraft and ships operating in and around the Mediterranean. On top of all this, you know, all these scenarios and situations and 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 outlines. We get a detailed rundown of bases, cities, and unique sites we might encounter over flying these regions. So while there's no narrative per se, in that you know there's there's no cutscene between missions saying, "Oh, another situation in Libya is this." There's definitely a lot of information here to fill in the gaps as to the why of what you're doing. Also, as I'm fond of pointing out, should you decide to create motivations and a backstory for your own character in-game, the manual absolutely will help you get into the world and the situation just as well as if the game had its own narrative and its own cutscenes spelled out for you. So pretty, pretty cool in that, you know, a lot of these simulation games do not really have any kind of, of... you know, a narrative per se, but there's there's so much background information that if you want to make your own, hey, you can totally do it. Time to talk gameplay. Upon launching the game, we are greeted by our favorite thing in the world, manual-based copy protection. Now, the back of the manual contains an extensive section on warplanes that you are likely to encounter in the various theaters of the game you are expected to identify one of these planes based on a plan view that is a top-down view, sort of a blueprint view of that aircraft. Uh, It's not that hard to do if you have the manual handy. Now, in the current re-released version from Night Dive Studios, the copy protection screen pops up automatically and flashes the green past message. So they sort of hacked it so that you don't have to do that no more. So you're now brought to the pilot roster. I feel a bit odd about this part and i think the same thing happened in uh in m1 tank platoon as well because to to create your character or your pilot if you want to call him that uh you seem to have to delete one of the stock pilots that are there uh in doing so you can choose whoever you want i guess Uh, you create a fresh new second lieutenant complete with a fancy call sign i called my guy william umb cast roberts as a play on my internet handle Uh, From here, it's recommended that you embark on the the default training mission, which takes place, like we just talked about, in in Libya. All missions in F-19 have a primary and a secondary objective. Completing these objectives award you points, which count toward promotions, medals, and other cool Army stuff like that. Sorry, Air Force stuff like that. (laughs) Or maybe it's Marines. I can't remember now. (laughs) I think it's Air Force. Um, This is a training mission. So, unfortunately, anything you do doesn't actually get recorded. You also can't die. Um, If I recall correctly, and I should probably just... Oh, no, actually, I didn't even do that mission in my YouTube playthrough. I just did that to familiarize myself with the game again. So, um, if I remember right, the Libyan ground strike training mission involves a primary objective of destroying a radar station and a secondary objective of destroying a tank farm before returning to base, Uh, and that base will either be the USS America, which is an aircraft carrier, or the airfield at uh, Sigonella on western Sicily. Now, the mission and intelligence briefings that we can read through give us all the information uh, that I just told you, in addition to data about your default flight plan, enemy airfields, missile emplacements, and radar detection ranges, which are certainly relevant to you as you are the pilot of a radar-absorbing and reflecting stealth fighter. So once you're comfortable with your mission, we move on to arming your aircraft. Now, every mission comes with a pre-selected default weapons loadout. Uh, for this ground strike mission, it's recommended that you fill your four weapons bays with three AIM-120 AMRAAM medium-range air-to-air missiles, four AIM-9 Sidewinders, which are sort of shorter-range uh, air-to-air missiles, and a set of two AGM-65 Maverick thermal imaging missiles. And, uh, you know, that's sort of it for the missiles. And then you want to load one bay with uh, three Mark 82 slick 500 pound free fall iron bombs, which are good to have in case, you know, the Mavericks don't really do, you know, say they they miss or something. It's good to have some some good old fashioned iron bombs to follow up with. So you're free to swap out any of your bays for any of the 16 weapon types in the game, including a variety of guided, unguided and retarded bombs. Retarded means they are deployed uh, with a parachute on launch, I'm not trying to be mean to anybody. <laughs> each uh, each weapon has a kind of an ideal set of targets. Uh, some weapons are more versatile than others. Uh, the Maverick and the Slick that we just talked about are sort of your your all-purpose workhorses of uh, of air to ground. Other weapons like the Durandal or uh, Minelets are better suited to disabling enemy runways. And uh, the CBU-72 Fae, F-A-E, Fuel Air Explosive, uh, that uses an overpressure technique to really devastate buildings. I believe the, 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 the Fae is considered, or at least at, at the time was considered, the most powerful uh, non-nuclear bomb technology that was around. Uh, you got the penguin and the harpoon missiles. They're effective at destroying ships at sea. Uh, the harm is great at destroying uh, radar installations, as it homes in on radar signals. Overall, you always have an explosive to do the job you need done, and in fact, you are encouraged to to play with your bomb loadout as you progress through the game. So, on top of all these great missiles and bombs. Uh, your bays can also carry, or your sorry, your bays. Oh yes, yes. Your bays can also carry a 135 millimeter uh, and infrared camera for low-level recon. Also, to extend your range, uh, you can carry an additional 1,900 pounds of fuel in uh, in one of those bays. And finally, for covert supply missions, uh, airdropped equipment can also take up one of your bays, depending on your mission profile. So for this training mission. Default loadout, more than acceptable, Accepting it moves you onto the hangar where you strap on your F-19 and find yourself magically transported to the runway. Uh, In our case, we're starting from an airbase on land, so uh, before you take off, it's recommended you familiarize yourself with your surroundings and your situation. Uh, Your F-19 is equipped with a state-of-the-art heads-up display, two color displays, in addition to a variety of indicator lights and readouts. First things first, let's check our loadout. Hitting F5 brings up our ordnance on the right-hand display. Uh, we can check all the stuff that we added to our plane, and it is there. F10 shows us our mission objectives and whether or not they've been completed. F7 brings up our navigation console, which lets us know our mission waypoints and how far away they are. And uh, the left-hand display, all those things go, come up on the right-hand display. The left-hand display is pretty much only used for uh, mapping. Currently, it shows a strategic overview map. With uh, tracks on each waypoint displayed, you can also switch it to a closer range tactical view, which uh, tracks nearby radar contacts. So control-wise, good enough for now. Nothing too special for takeoff. Uh, usually you you set your flaps out, you extend your flaps, increase your throttle to 100%, you're gonna start rolling. Once your speed hits 200 knots, you pull back on the stick gently to rotate and leave the ground. Once you clear the runway, raise your gear, eventually raise your flaps, turn towards your first waypoint. Now, this is where the game starts to diverge a little bit from a more traditional combat flight simulator. In almost any other game that you can really think of, your goal is to fly your mission and pretty much cause as much mayhem and destruction uh, to the enemy as possible. Depending on the scenario and the conflict level that you select that could be how you play this game however it's not incredibly likely you will survive for very long if you do you're flying a stealth fighter you absolutely need to use that fact to your advantage your f19 is specifically designed to present a very small electromagnetic signature and thus is very hard but not impossible to detect via radar Now, how you fly your F-19 is just as important, if not even more important, than how many bombs you can carry. All the theaters are crawling with ground-based radar stations, aircraft mounting their own radar systems, surface-to-air missiles with narrow-beam tracking radar, uh, aerial warning and reconnaissance AWACS planes that have massive mobile radar radar, uh, radar scanners. All of them are on the lookout for you. So, on takeoff, in support of this, uh, you know, stealthy approach, we've got a choice. And that choice is to go low or to go high. Going low, that is pretty much between 500 to about 2,000 feet, offers us quite a few advantages. Below 2,000 feet, radar's going to have trouble picking out your plane from the ground clutter. The lower and slower that you go, the better. More speed tends to mean more engine power and more emissions that are, again, detectable. Now, most of your weapons are also ideally suited to be dropped from about, you know, between 1,000 and 2,000 feet. Also, flying this low, you can use terrain, like mountains and things like that, to block signals from stationary radar emplacements. So, you know, if you're on the other side of a mountain, hey, the radar, not gonna find you. Now, disadvantages of staying low, they're pretty obvious. You don't have a lot of room to play around. If you get into a turning dogfight with some enemy planes that low, it's very, very easy to lose track of your altitude and your speed and end up splattered on the dirt, especially if you're already going low and slow to begin with to avoid detection. Also, as you approach 500 feet, you start to feel the effects of flying so close to the ground. Uh, You need to use more power to stay at speed due to the thickness of the air. Uh, This reduces your range quite a bit and may leave you out of fuel before you can make it back to the field, especially if you get tied up in a fight. Also, as you get close to the ground You tend to get buffeted around a little bit, and uh, that sort of makes it hard to fly straight and level, maintain altitude. Again, maintaining altitude, very, very important when you are flying very close to the ground. So, going high has its own advantages and disadvantages. Flying above 32,000 feet provides the same detection advantages of flying below 2,000, with the added benefit of both generally being sort of outside of SAM range and being high enough that you have enough time and wiggle room to maneuver your way out of an encounter. Uh, The air is thinner, so you use less fuel, and thus you potentially increase your range. Now, on the downside, it does take quite a while to climb climb up above 32,000 feet. And uh, on the other side of that, to make any appreciable, precise ground attack, you're probably going to have to descend to effective release altitude, which again is around 2,000 feet. Finally, during your climb and your descent, you are more detectable as you cross into kind of the danger radar can detect you really good zone between 2,000 and 32,000 feet. So for for 30,000 vertical feet, you are more detectable than you would otherwise be. Now, other ways to mess up your stealthiness are to fly fast and to fly dirty. So flying dirty, but that basically means possibly only to me, but I think this is actually a uh, an, air, an aeronautical term. Uh, flying dirty means flying with your landing gear or your flaps or your speed brakes extended, and uh, most importantly, with your weapons bay open. You see, the F-19, as uh, I've sort of implied already, stores all of its weapons in a series of four internal bomb bays. To deploy a weapon, you need to open the bay doors. Now doing this disrupts the radar absorbing and reflect, reflecting, reflecting is a difficult word to say, but yes, the radar absorbing and reflecting capabilities of your aircraft. Now, of course, to destroy targets, you need to open your bay. So you're basically the most detectable when you're right over your target, trying to destroy it, your target may be well defended. So, you know, the moment of truth, you, you're, you're very, very detectable and in extreme danger um your electromagnetic emissions are tracked by the electromagnetic visibility scale which is a vertical bar in the center of your instrument panel uh and your emissions are represented by how much of the bar is filled in red uh from the bottom and uh, enemy radar signals are uh, represented as bars that come in from the top if these bars intersect you are likely to be detected now if you do have a missile fired at you Your F-19 is, of course, equipped with all the standard countermeasures, such as chaff and flares, in addition to an electronic countermeasure suite, which uh, can confuse homing systems on some missiles. Of course, if you turn on your ECM suite, this is an active system, which puts out signals, so if you use your ECM to get out of the way of a a missile, then uh, you are automatically substantially more detectable. Also, uh, should you be detected, you might have to fight some enemy aircraft, and uh, your F-19 eh, can do some stuff, but it's not really a dog fighter. If you get into a fight, you're not faster and you're not more maneuverable than most of your enemies. Your best bet is to try and engage them at range with missiles, or uh, to try and lose them by dropping your emissions. Uh, your fighter is equipped with a Vulcan Gatling gun if it comes down to it i did find myself switching to it when uh my missiles missed you know there's just some of those missions where you're like damn my missiles are not hitting today um so you know with all that all that stuff in mind there's a lot of things to think about but uh you know you fly your mission you hit each waypoint uh you find your primary and your secondary targets uh you can inspect targets using your tracking camera which is displayed on your uh on your right display you drop your bombs you fire your missiles hopefully you destroy your targets and you can then return to base and perform what can be the most difficult part of this whole ordeal, landing. Now, this is a training mission, so you're set for no crashes. You can basically fly your plane into the ground and land successfully. Uh, if you're not landing and you hit the ground, you just sort of bounce. <laughs> it's kind of, uh, kind of funny. Um, I like using the easy landings option where the realism is reduced, but, and, but you can still, if you're not landing on an airfield and your landing gear isn't out, you will crash into the ground. But otherwise, as long as you're kind of generally pointed in the right direction with uh, all your systems set right, you will land. Realistic landings are obviously the most challenging. If you land off the runway or you come down a little bit too hard, you may crash and end your military career uh, right there. Now, to make life easier in the game, all runways and aircraft carriers are oriented north-south and are at an altitude of zero feet. This isn't always true in the real world, but uh, in this game, that's certainly the case. Now, this makes lining up for a landing a bit easier. That, in conjunction with your tactical map, the instrument landing system, and your tracking cameras, they actually kind of really give you a good view of, uh, of your your plane's orientation versus the airfield's orientation. Uh, And to me they actually make approaches and landing relatively easy and actually quite a lot of fun you know i I really enjoy sort of coming in after a mission circling the field doing a proper landing you know as much of a proper landing as i can muster it's kind of a nice way to end off a mission so as you progress through your career you can fly missions in all the theaters with a variety of options including a range of enemy skill from green to elite and a variety of states of conflict uh, that I talked about briefly in the story section now, these levels of conflict, aside from setting the stage like 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 we discussed, also dictate uh your rules of engagement, which basically are a set of rules that um you know uh define how you fly your missions so in cold war, your missions are always clandestine clandestine you lose points if you're detected uh in fact. Uh, if you destroy enemy, you have to, in fact, destroy any enemy planes or facilities that do detect you. We're, we're in a sort of a, a no-witnesses sort of situation. However, you also lose points if you release weapons against targets outside of your objectives. Uh, Cold War is, uh, is really the major stealth game here. It's, it's basically Thief in a Plane. Most missions involve photo recon, supply drops, or surgical strikes against individual facilities or individual aircraft in limited war things are a bit more relaxed you shouldn't be seen however you can engage military targets of opportunity Uh, conventional war is is what we're used to any targets fair game detection doesn't count against your mission score it does however have an effect on how much opposition you'll face and like i said your f19 is not really equipped to handle hordes and hordes of of enemy aircraft so you know you can engage whoever you want without any repercussions But if you do it too much, you're probably going to end up dead. So as you progress through the game, your pilot will receive medals and promotions based on mission performance, hopefully ending your career with a final promotion to Brigadier General and a fancy job to retire into. Uh, This is determined after flying a career with a maximum of 99 missions. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... so not a huge amount in tech focus today. Uh, this, this, this game is, is pretty straightforward insofar as technology goes. So coming out in 1988, uh, the game required an IBM PC XT, AT or compatible with at least DOS 2.1 or higher. Uh, as we see in the game's pre-launch menu, it supported a variety of graphic modes ranging from Hercules, CGA, EGA, Tandy, or VGA. You know, it's it's sort of funny that this I mean, it's not funny, but I find it funny that this game mentions support for Hercules because it sort of jogs some of my some of my memories. When I was a kid, I always wanted to play games in Hercules graphics mode because the name sounded so much cooler than CGA or EGA. What I didn't realize at the time, of course, was that Hercules was effectively a high-res monochrome display adapter created by a guy named, uh, I believe it's Van Suankut. You see, when IBM PCs first came about, um, there were two options for graphics. CGA, which ran in either 320 by 200 kind of you know, low-res, or 640 by 200 high-res, CGA adapters could be plugged into a range of cheap displays and even TVs using an RF adapter. Great for games, not so hot when you're trying to get any work done, you know, like text-based work. For that, you had what was known as MDA, as the MDA or monochrome display adapter. So, you know, when you see those pure green and orange kind of terminal type displays with with very very sharp text, those are plugged into the MDA. Now, The problem with the MDA is that it really had no capability to display any graphics at all. This was like an ASCII text mode only display. Now most DOS programs at the time supported both modes, but there were a few that didn't. So Van wanted to work on his PC. He was working on a, I I believe it was was his thesis, it might have been his doctoral thesis, something like that. But he wanted to work in his native Thai alphabet, which is obviously a non-ASCII character set. Um uh, so he decided to go about making something that would let him do that. So effectively what the Hercules display adapter accomplished was to allow MDA compatible hardware to run programs designed to run in CGA. Of course, since the card had no capacity to create color, uh, colors were mapped to varying forms of grayscale, basically different patterns of like dithering and things like that. So Despite the awesome name, I eventually realized playing my game in black and white probably wasn't going to be much fun. Not to mention, I didn't have the hardware to even succeed in running the thing. And even today, I tried running uh, F-19 in Hercules mode in, uh, in DOSBox, and it, it wasn't too happy, shall we say. Well, that was that was sort of a tangent, wasn't it? Anyways, uh, <laughs> uh, the game played on, on pretty much anything. That could run DOS. Uh, the game's music, of which you've heard uh, the pretty much one track <laughs> of uh, over this uh, this this section here, was composed composed by by I think I, I haven't figured out how to pronounce this guy's name even since the last MicroProse game I covered by Ken Lagasse. I, I think it's Ken Lagasse. It might be Ken Lagasse if uh, he pronounces it the French way. But uh, you know, Ken wrote um, wrote music for. Many, many, many microprose games starting with uh, gunship back in 1986 and ranging to uh, across the Rhine all the way up into 1995. It's pretty cool. I like the I like the the theme song for this game and this version of the game, but uh, yeah, really, really awesome.
1: You're listening to the
0: upper memory block podcast time for okay time for everyone's favorite part the dev story so the story of f19 doesn't actually begin with famed game designer sid meyer as as you may have have thought but with another game entirely you see F-19 Stealth Fighter was not Microprose's first Stealth Fighter game. In uh, 1987, Microprose released a game for the Commodore 64 called Project Stealth Fighter. And uh, that game sounded a little bit like this. <laughs> So the music here was still by Ken Lagasse, or like Uh Now, Project Stealth Fighter was a unique game in the uh, eight the bit days of the C64. So after the release of F-15 Strike Eagle in uh, 1985, a bit of an internal debate took place at Microprose. Um, what plane should they model in their next uh, study flight simulator? Now uh, The F-16 came to mind, you know, a twitchy, unstable plane with fly-by-wire systems sounded pretty cool. Uh, the Advanced Tactical Fighter program was another option. Uh, this program was uh, backed by a request for proposals that resulted in uh, the F-22. However, they'd simply have to make up a plane involved in this since uh, the result of that program would be years away. I think the ATF uh, request, for, uh, request for proposals went out in 1986 so they were just sort of thinking about things when this came out so they're like hey we'll just use a do a future plane now one other plane stuck out as an interesting possibility the fabled f19 you see since 1962 numbering of u.s fighter aircraft has been sequential beginning with the f1 fury it remained this way all the way up To the FA 18 Hornet, which, and, uh, you know, excluding the F 13 for stupid, superstitious reasons. Uh, The next fighter that was announced after the F 18 was the eventually canceled F 20 Tiger Shark. So, what happened to the F 19? Well, rumor had it that the F 19 designation wasn't skipped, it was reserved for a super secret black project, a stealth fighter that remains classified even to this day. Now, what really happened is that Northrop, who was you know putting out their, their proposal for the, F, for, for the next plane that you know, was gonna be worked on, pressured for the designation of F-20 so their plane would stand out as having a nice round and even number. Also, Soviet fighters had odd-numbered designations. You know, the MiG-19, the MiG-21, the SU-27, things like that. They felt their planes should not have the same number as the planes of the enemy. Of course, since the rumor of the F-19 was so pervasive in the aviation community, even though Northrop, I think, might even have come out and said, no, we just asked for F-20, don't be stupid, people. But, you know, this rumor was so pervasive and so basically believed to be an open secret some proposed designs were actually put out by various uh, enthusiast groups uh these designs uh, also came from model companies like testers uh you know and testers the designers over at the testers corporation uh posited that a stealth fighter should look sleek and curvy and streamlined And since the rumor also implied that uh, Lockheed's Skunk Works team, uh, the designers of the SR 71 Blackbird, were the ones behind the project, they released what they felt was, you know, it was sort of a streamlined model based on the SR 71 designs with some vertical stabilizers and things attached to it to make it, you know, look all cool. Now, (laughs) I'm going to say that the tester's model looked pretty damn cool. Cool, and this 148th scale model ended up selling 700,000 units on release, outselling the previous best-selling model kit of all time, AMT's USS Enterprise. Now, with this model coming out in 1986, around the same time as MicroProcess Quest for a new flight sim, choice was was pretty easy, right? On top of the fact that this mythical plane was a phenomenon among flight enthusiasts. Uh, the fact that it was a stealth fighter offered the team a unique opportunity in the design of a modern day jet simulator. You see, unlike earlier conflicts, military action in the eighties and nineties were the realm of kind of very specialized craft, very coupled, tightly coupled mission schedules. So it, it was a lot less fun and freewheeling, you know, as a game. I probably wasn't ever really fun, but you know, a lot less freewheeling and entertaining as a game than you'd have, you know, in like a more of a, a World War One or World War II. Uh, flight simulator so a stealth fighter was the exception to this rule by necessity a stealth fighter is a lone wolf operator and a game simulating this fact would place the player in single control of a unique aircraft whose mission is not mass destruction but sneaking surgical strikes on or or you know one-on-one kind of world war one style duels against skilled individual enemies So Project Stealth Fighter, as the game became known, was designed for the Commodore 64 by Jim Sinoski and Arnold Hendrick, and in a lot of ways looks very 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 similar to the F-19 game we would play on our DOS PCs. Uh, Using the same core gameplay from F-15 Strike Eagle as a base, Project Stealth Fighter was said to push the limits of 8-bit hardware. Now, it featured the same set of weapons, the same theaters of operation, the same levels of conflict. Effectively, this was the proto version of F-19. Now, with the resounding success of Project Stealth Fighter, Microprose decided to do what most companies did at the time. They started planning to re-release this very popular game on other platforms. Now, since most of the games at this time were built primarily in uh, in assembly language, the game generally had to be pretty much rewritten for each platform because each each you know the 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 pc the zx spectrum the amp not the amstrad i don't think that's really a thing but at the but uh you know every every platform every processor had a different uh assembly language now as project stealth fighter released and they started coming up with this plan the market was already sort of shifting. The Commodore 64 was old news and IBM compatible machines were coming more and more into vogue for gaming. Now, these machines were much more capable. Uh, they could address more memory, they had faster CPUs, they could display high-res graphics, and uh, you know they could display those graphics faster than the old Commodore hardware could. So to try and break into this market more effectively, Sid Meier, along with artist Andy Hollis and fellow designer Arnold Hendrick, uh, you know they they all approached Micro, Microprose's senior vice president of product development and uh, proposed a bold plan. They knew that this game had to that they had to work on a PC port of Project Stealth Fighter, but they wanted to use the power of the new platform to its fullest. They just didn't want to move the game over as it was, so that meant. Not just porting the C64 game over to the PC, but improving almost every aspect of the game along the way. Now, uh, the uh, the senior VP of product development, his last name is Meyer, uh, he agreed as long as they could do this within a year. So off they went. They already had a popular game that pushed the limits of an older platform, and they had the opportunity to redo it with more power. Hey, what more can you ask for? Uh, the team soon expanded, to include Jim Sinoski, who designed and programmed the original game, plus PC programmer extraordinaire David McKibben. Now McKibben focused on building all the new graphics libraries that abstracted calls to video drivers and allowed the other programmers to focus on you know, gameplay enhancements and all, all that noise. Uh, the terrain maps were beefed up from the C64 version, and uh, while the PC did offer you know, more memory space and all that, the art team really did work on optimizing uh, terrain models to store much more detail than they had originally envisioned. In addition, uh, the addition of a large QA team started to make the project team pretty big and pretty disparate. Like, you know, as, as game teams went at the time, the team making F-19 did get pretty big. Uh, Meyer didn't really like this. And, uh, you know, before the days of uh, agile software development and daily scrum meetings and things like that, he would actually schedule full team lunches where uh, everyone would get into the same room and discussions of status and issues and things like that would uh, would occur. So it was sort of a you know software development processes uh, before their time, if you will. Now, of course, as many projects do, this one went over schedule. However, the game was in a good enough state for the holiday season of 1988 to release. Now, along the way, the team <laughs> realized that. Um, You know this was this ended up being such a large effort. There were so many changes, so many improvements, uh, were made to kind of the the original Project Stealth Fighter that they pretty much had a new game here. To illustrate this point, they renamed the game from Project Stealth Fighter to F nineteen Stealth Fighter. Now F nineteen Stealth Fighter was just as well regarded as its predecessor. Uh, The game featured a good balance between realism and ease of use, in addition to uh, a great feeling of tension provided by the focus on stealth gameplay and tactics the game also came packaged as i've sort of implied with an amazing 200 plus i think it's a 253 page manual featuring uh, loads of supplementary information on stealth strategy and tactics allied enemy weapons and a great rundown of aircraft of the time however as fate would have it on the very day of release november 10th 1988 the U.S. Air Force would cast a small shadow on this amazing release. On this day, the Air Force announced the existence of their actual stealth fighter. It was to be designated the F-117A Nighthawk. Also, it was not the sleek and sexy vision of a Lockheed stealth fighter that testers had envisioned and the uh, the, the team had taken to use as the model in their game, but an angular and menacing plane. You know, the one that we all know. Well, it was too late to change things, so the game shipped with it—you know—shipped as is with its fictional F19 model. Uh, Micropro soon made an F117A model available via CompuServe, and those people with access to it could patch their game to uh, show the F117A instead. of course, this very popular game and this change led to an opportunity. A new team, led by designer Jeff Briggs, would again remake the remake and release F-117A Nighthawk Stealth Fighter 2.0 in the year 1991. Now, on top of shipping with uh, the model of the actual F-117A and some changes to the flight model to match uh, reported performance of the new plane, the game again added improvements to its direct predecessor. Two new theaters of uh, operation were added, including a follow-up to the Persian Gulf campaign in which you fly missions over the Middle East in Operation Desert Storm. So <laughs> interestingly, in one scenario, uh, the Iraqis are your allies, and in the follow-on scenario, the Iraqis are your enemies. Uh, the graphics engine was greatly improved with environments, planes, and structures looking much richer. Also, most, I believe most, maybe even all, of uh, the missions in F-117 take place at night, which adds even more sort of eeriness and tension uh, to your uh, to your flying. It also sometimes required you to use the uh, the FLIR or forward-looking infrared functionality of your cameras to see targets better. Uh, more sound options were included with this game, supporting uh, PC speaker, Adlib, and Roland devices. And uh, the music in this version was composed by Jeff Briggs, and uh, it sounds great. However, <laughs> you know, music sounds great, but this game holds the crown for the only game so far that I have played that has made me want to shut off my MT-32. The engine noise in this game is incredibly grating, especially if you're wearing headphones and they're maybe just a touch too loud. Now, luckily uh, there are options to turn, uh, there's different sound levels, so you can turn off the engine noise and leave most of the other sounds active. It almost feels like they knew the sound would irritate people. So they added an option to, uh, to remove it. So, you know, if you guys want to want to cringe with me, this is what the freaking engine noise sounds like. And as long as your engine is running, this is the sound that is playing in your ears. Okay. I have 30 seconds of that. I'm stopping it right there. Cause that just hurts. <laughs> Anyways, uh, the new game also offered the option between two types of planes. Uh, you see, the fictional F 19 carried weapons in four bomb bays. Now, the real world F 117A carried only half of that armament with only two bays. So, to maintain the gameplay from the original, you could fly a fictional Microprose F 117A that had four bays, or you could opt for a realistic version that had only two bays. Now, F-117A Stealth Fighter 2.0 released in 1991 to good reviews, though it definitely was not uh, considered to be as groundbreaking as the previous two games.
1: You are listening to the Upper Podcast.
0: Okay, so we really don't need to talk about the future of uh, these games separate from how we can get them, because, well, the future is sort of here. We aren't getting any remakes or remasters or additional sequels or anything like that, but these games have been re-released in as close to their original forms as uh, I care to have them. Now, you can get F-19 Stealth Fighter on Steam. Uh, This is another game revived by our friends at Night Dive Studios, and they've done a great job getting it to run out of the box from Steam. Um, As I previously mentioned, they were also able to add in a bypass for the copy protection, which is sort of nice. My only small gripe, about this version is that for some insane reason that I don't understand, they packaged the game with the manual for Project Stealth Fighter, which led to a good amount of confusion for me, since the games are different enough that a lot of the instructions about how to fly and how to fight were not accurate. (laughs) It's like cockpit layout was different. Uh, The process for performing a recon mission in both games is completely different. In Project Stealth Fighter, you need to overfly your target from 20 to 24,000 feet to take photos of it. In F-19, if you do that, it doesn't work. You need to approach your target from 500 to 1,000 feet to take pictures in F-19. Suffice it to say, I had to try a few times to get it right. I think if you watch my YouTube uh, mission of F-19, you actually see that happen to me because I was reading the manual that came with the Steam version, which is the manual for the wrong game. (laughs) F-117A Stealth Fighter 2.0 is available to us via GOG.com. It comes with the right manual. (laughs) And, uh, you know, both games are, uh, they they run pretty well just out of the box.
1: Say whatever is in your mind freely. Our conversation will be kept in strict confidence.
0: Okay, we've got an email and a voicemail to go over here. Uh, First email from Chris M. uh, And he writes, Hello, Joe and fellow UM blockers. Hope everything is doing. Everyone is doing well. I really enjoyed seeing your photos, Joe, of uh, star, the Star Wars reunion in Florida. It looked like a blast. Pew pew. I've recently purchased the remaster of Full Throttle last week. I was uh, pretty happy with what they had done. Playing it is like the way you imagined it as a young person, and uh, compared to the jaggy illustrations and compressed sound of the original, experiencing crisp, bold illustrations and hearing the high fidelity voices and music really makes it even more charming and an immersive game. Uh, also great how they extended the backgrounds to widescreen. I'm sure they got plenty of complaints about Grim Fandango's box screen view. Uh, I enjoyed flipping back and forth for the older version to see how they extended the illustrations. I still get blown away that Rip Berger is Mark Hamill's voice. Wow. Uh, he did such a great job and all the voice actors did fun to hear Maurice LaMarche's Brian esque styled voice too. Ha. As many who have played the short but still very satisfying game, looking forward to your podcast about F-19. Never played that version, but I had the sequel, F-117A Nighthawk Stealth Fighter 2.0, which I enjoyed and loved the intro. Take care, everyone. Chris. Well, thanks, Chris. I probably should have thrown your email at the beginning of the show, but uh regardless, yeah, the full throttle remaster. I haven't played it yet, but you know, full throttle is such an awesome game that uh, I'm probably going to get around to it pretty, pretty soon, just uh, on my own time since I already did an episode about that game. So thanks very much for that email and apologies for throwing it in the wrong part of the show, but uh, Hey, we're none of us are perfect. Next. We have a, a good, a good length email or a voicemail from uh, from friend of the show, guest host of the show, Mr. Chris Olson, and also known as CGO apps. So take it away. Chris.
1: Hey, Joe, and everyone out there in the upper memory block blockers, uh, great to talk to you again. Just uh, would like to share a couple of thoughts on the game that you covered in this episode, F-19 Stealth Fighter and F-117A 2.0. Uh, I mean, this is kind of a no-brainer for me. This is Microprose, MPS Labs, and... Some of the uh, MicroPro superstars are attached, at least to the first title, Sid Meier and Andy So, Certainly right up my alley, and two games that I definitely played and enjoyed growing up. And really uh, happy to see a Flight Simulator being covered again. I know it's been a little while. Anyway, uh, I'll try to get my thoughts brief. I'm feeling just a little bit under the weather, and I have to imagine you probably have quite a few emails and voicemails on these two games. So starting with F-19, uh, you probably cover this, but one of the things that comes to mind, as far as just trying to remember back through uh, through all the years of, of when the game came out, was the packaging. Uh, the manual was really, really detailed, and if um, I, I think the contents might have varied a little bit, whether you were in the U.S., U.K., et cetera, but uh, I remember getting a really detailed dossier on all of the kind of uh, Soviet-era fighters you would encounter and different uh, kind of ground equipment and whatnot. And that was just really uh, really really neat. Uh micropos generally did a good job um including you know good detailed manuals. They didn't I'd say quite go as far as maybe the Spectrum Hollowite folks did uh with like Falcon 3.0 which is kind of gold standard for you know enormous uh dangerous uh, manuals in like a food fight situation kind of thing. But um but they really went above and beyond with uh with these two products. F nineteen in particular. I didn't have a box copy of F one seventeen A so I would just have to assume it was pretty similar, but I know I did have a, a boxed copy of uh, F-19. It was either Christmas or birthday or something, and uh, just a really packed uh, with, uh, there was not a lot of uh, spare room in the box, with, certainly with the floppies in there too. So that said, the other thing I wanted to mention, and I actually remember reading this a couple months after I got the game. I think I got the game pretty close to when it came out, which was pretty rare for me, um, it's certainly in those days. But there was uh, this notion of the title of the of the you know of the airplane or of the of the program or of the game you know, being F-19. It puts it right in between two you know relatively well-known military aircraft. <coughs> Pardon me. In the uh, in the U.S. you've got the F-18 Hornet now the Super Hornet you know very famous and still in service today, and then you know maybe not quite as well known but still many years in service, the F-20 Tiger Shark. So the F-19 moniker was kind of like the uh, the nod that uh, Top Gun made to, what was it, the, uh, um, they, they used a, an even-numbered MiG, I think maybe the MiG-28, which doesn't really exist, right, because it's all this odd-numbered uh, uh, MiG aircraft, at least as far as we refer to them. So, you know, this notion of the F-19 being, a, I guess it was an open secret that the U.S. was working on a stealth fighter but that name was just kind of chosen uh, by default. And there are still those out there. There's a big argument going on, uh, apparently close to when the airplane entered service, about whether this still referred to some uh, undisclosed, super secret Area 51 type project that never saw the light of day. I don't really buy that, but of course it would eventually come to be known as the F-117 and go into service in the uh, first conflict uh, over in Iraq that had to do with Kuwait and, and so on and so forth. So with regard to all that, the development of F-19 was really done based on a guess. And the reason I bring this up is it was either Computer Gaming World or PC Gamer or one of the big magazines at the time, I think it was one of those two, actually mentioned that the kind of reference material they used to create the airplane that you fly in the game was based on a plastic model kit, a tester's. Uh, F-19 stealth fighter model kit, and that just blew my mind. So I remember reading that as a kid, and I built a lot of those plastic models. My goodness, from you know all the eras, World War One all the way up to the Jet Age, and you know and so on and so forth. So there are still a few sitting in my parents' basement that uh, some of the best that uh, you know kind of made the you know, avoided the uh, dumpster there. But uh, anyway, I'm very familiar with testers, and they were definitely a, a good, um, you know, a, a very detailed kind of model airplane producer. But the, I would just love to have been a fly in the wall for that pitch. Like, okay, well, here we go. We gotta uh, gotta go to the hobby shop and and buy a plastic model airplane kit so we can use that for our reference material for 3D modeling and line art and uh, manual and, and everything. That's that's just kind of amazing. If you think about it, it really is a good way to do that. Uh, you get a really stepwise, extremely detailed picture of some of the internals, how the parts fit together. So, I guess it, it really shouldn't be that surprising, but especially for a, a fictitious project or a a you know classified project that was not known uh, I guess it makes sense uh So I just wanted to mention that you probably talk about that and uh apologies for the uh if that's redundant but uh that was one of the kind of the things that definitely made me smile and kind of going back to years ago childhood et cetera. As far as the gameplay itself goes, um, F-19 plays really, really well. I was trying to – I replayed both of them, and uh, while I have to give the nod to F-117 for just kind of graphics achievements, F-19, to me, plays like a really, really kind of awesome advanced version of F-15 Strike Eagle, and with the two people at the top, it's kind of no surprise there, right? You've got Andy Hollis and – I'm sorry, Sid Meier and Andy Hollis, two of the principals on – the first F-15 and both are just have their name all over the, um, you know, some of the biggest and, and brightest project of Micropros, especially going back into the early 80s when they were uh, mostly developing for the 8-bit uh, realm of computers. So it's just it's just really really well done. It it, it's, it separates itself from F-15. It's clearly a, a new uh, new airplane, new focus. You've got a, a much more uh, detailed kind of campaign mode theaters and so on and so forth, but F19 just plays really well. It's EGA graphics, but it's done in, in a where it really hums along. I think I remember playing this on my 286, either 12 or 20. Uh, maybe I'm dreaming there. I hope not. I uh, hope I'm remembering that right. But it really played well, um, and I do have a, a soft spot for these kind of later era EGA games that push yeah yeah that ask for a lot that have a good frame rate and everything else certainly uh f nineteen falls into that category and uh it just well done um it was challenging though it was definitely uh of the two more challenging to fly and the reviews kind of pointed that out you really had to uh you couldn't just jump in and fly this you know kind of without looking at the manual and and have a sense of the commands but you know f fifteen was kind of that way as well, where you had to at least take a, a gander at the manual to kind of have a a chance at completing some of the uh, some of the later campaign missions. But really enjoyed this one. Uh, I don't think it got overlooked. I think these, both of these games sold pretty well. I don't have any figures in front of me, and I'm sure you'll talk about that. But uh, the last thing I'll mention is I did not know, and in looking back and trying to find the tidbit about the model airplane part there. Uh, I realize this is actually kind of a continuation of a project that started on the spectrum and the C64, and that's really interesting. So if you look at the credits for the uh, for F19, it has, of course, Sid Meier, Andy Hollis, and then several other folks, and he gets the based on an original design by um, and then some other names. So I, I'd be really curious now. I don't know if you found in, in some of your research how kind of realized the project was and I think I said some, read something that said uh, they borrowed some concepts but really the, the actual kind of creation of F19 for the various platforms was uh, more of kind of a ground up deal last thing I'll mention about this this game falls into the really awesome kind of spot in time where it saw releases across many many platforms including the Atari ST so we're like Atari ST Amiga MS-DOS uh, PC 9800, I just really love games that that see that many kind of different uh, release points uh, to platforms. It's so different. You've got the 68,000 processor for the SD, you've got the you know, the 8086, 286, 386 architecture for MS-DOS, and then a whole bunch of other things in between. I just find that really interesting. And the game that I always play to with regard to that is Another World, where that was released for just about everything uh, in that kind of in that time frame. So Uh, So I'm really kind of always happy to see a game that that gets a release across a whole bunch of different platforms because it's just really kind of interesting to see for a two- or a three-year period. If you wanted to make a game and make it commercially viable, you had to support uh, these million kind of different, very, very uh, different platforms as far as architecture goes. Moving on to F-117A, of the two, uh, again, I mentioned uh, I definitely – More kind of stronger memories for F19, and it running a little better. F117A, I want to say chugged a bit. Uh, I don't know if it was playable on a 286. Maybe it was, Um, but I seem to remember perhaps it was the next machine that we had, 386SX, 16 megahertz, which could not unfortunately handle Wing Commander 2. But I want to say maybe F117A grounded to a halt as well. Uh, I can't recall if it it definitely chugged more than F19 did. And for that, um, it definitely lost a point or two. But the graphics were, once I did get it running or once, you know, we got a system upgrade or or whatever happened there, it was really rewarding. This was in kind of the second wave of VGA games to come out. Of course, you know, you had A-10 Tank Killer in 89 and Red Baron in 1990. And then it kind of, you know, really um, kind of broken the mold as far as that goes. And then the adventure games like King's Quest V and Space Quest IV, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like F-117A kind of fall into the second category where some of the optimizations and tricks were, were kind of a little bit more well-known, and they tried to tackle kind of new and interesting things with 256 colors and and, uh, and whatnot. And the thing that really comes to mind is how they've dealt with runways. The so runways in this game look great if you look at uh, what they looked like in the you know games years before. Runway, runway lighting, uh, exterior, interior lighting, sunset, sunrise... All uh, oh, just really, really beautiful. I know that has nothing to do with gameplay, but they really did a. It was kind of breathtaking to see that for the first time in a flight simulator, kind of modeled in that way. And of course, you could kind of zoom out and uh, you do the chase plane view or the tower view and see the airplane sitting on the runway, which is very, very satisfying. Uh, the two games are very similar. I think F one seventeen gives you, a, you know, gives you Cuba and some more um, kind of theater modes. And I would say it just flies. Yeah, I would say it's a little easier to fly. At least for my memory, but just ultimately not quite as satisfying as F19. Uh, but the two games are very, very good, especially if you view F117A as a direct sequel. It's great. I think if you play both of them, enjoy them, the skills kind of transfer over to both. But there was just something uh, maybe not quite as, maybe just because the frame rate was just a little bit less on the old machines of the time. It, it's not really fair to play it on an emulator or something today because it's just, of course, it plays just really, really well and you have to deal with maybe trying to slow it down and whatnot. But I uh, really enjoyed both these games. I can't wait to hear the dev story and uh, all the segments in this one. These are two favorites. So my apologies for rambling on a little bit longer than I wanted to, but definitely had some uh, some cool memories to, uh, at least that I think, to share about these two titles. And with that, uh, I'll wrap it up. So, Joe, thanks very much. Uh, you can feel free to cut and paste this however you like if it's too long. And uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Congrats again on all the episodes. And... Thanks everyone for listening. Enjoy the two flight sims, and I will hopefully see you around. Remember to load DOS high. And thanks everyone. Bye.
0: Yeah, I don't cut nothing. <laughs> no, thanks. Thanks, Chris. That was Awesome, awesome. Really, really good. Really, really good comments. You you touched on some points that I covered, but you also touched on some some different points and some opinions that that I didn't cover. And yeah, you know, I sort of th- thought it was interesting. You know, how you said that. You know, th- this game came out in that sort of small period of time. Where, uh, you know, you had to support all these different platforms. And again, unless they had some sort of, you know, common libraries or anything, but I don't really think they did at the time. And the assembly languages for all these platforms were so different that, you know, effectively, like I said, you're sort of aside from you know, art assets such as they were, uh, you really had to rebuild the game like four or five times, like almost from scratch, at least the core core engine. And uh, yeah, super, super uh, interesting and complicated. So thanks, thanks so much for that. And like I said, at the top of the show, any comments, I'm always happy to take them. You know, your voices make, make the show a lot more interesting, a lot more fun. And, uh, you know, me rambling on for an hour and a bit I find sort of gets silly, so I like having you guys to to interject your your different voices and your opinions and your memories into things as well. Yo, blockers! This is Amirodakego, and you're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastriani. Keep being awesome, and remember, you crack me up, little buddy. <laughs> Alright, so do F-19 and F-117A. Hold up today. Absolutely, yes. I forgot how much damn fun these games are. F19 especially is so damned approachable. It strikes almost, I'd say, a perfect balance between realistic simulation and fun and approachable arcade game. You know, the flight model is challenging enough to give you an idea of what it might actually be like to fly a plane without burying you in checklists and systems diagnostics and procedures and you know all all the detail of you know how 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 you know flaps and controls and throttle and you know this and that and and you know it just it, it gives you enough of that to give you an idea but not enough to to bury you and make the game not fun you know the missions and the navigation systems are straightforward but with enough you know enemy skill level settings the missions do require you to employ good stealth tactics, which change depending on which type of radar you're facing. Like I said, you know, F 19, especially in the Cold War scenarios, is basically thief in a plane. I mean, you, you, you get in with the minimum of detection, you unleash hell on your target, and then you do your best to hide again so you can fly home. It's wonderful the game does have, you know, a time compression mode for those transit times on autopilot, but honestly, it doesn't really speed up the game all that much. It might be like 4x time compression or something. And, uh, you know, in, in, in later games, like, you know, it's not a flight sim, but you know, I think wing commander sort of invented, uh, invented this. And I know aces of the Pacific kind of took it and, and ran with it. And, uh, you know, basically, you hit A and you do the cinematic flyby autopilot, and then when more enemies get near, you you know you drop out of autopilot and you have to start playing again. Not in this game. In this game, you sit and you stew. You stare at your radar. You hope that no one sees you skimming the ocean at five hundred feet. I mean, this game is really atmospheric. Without even really trying. I mean, I think Chris even said it in relation to F one seventeen. You know, you have kind of like this: the sun sets, the sun rises and all of this stuff and like you know the 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 art style in f one seventeen, and the gameplay kind of processes the gameplay loop in in both of them really do lend this this sense of of unease and and eeriness you know just, just from the fact that you're trying to remain undetected now f one seventeen is also a great game and um I had never played F-19 before, so i previously played only F-117A Stealth Fighter 2.0. I never got into it much back in the 90s, but it is also a ton of fun. And I think I agree with Chris. You know, technically, it is superior in every way. More options, more missions, better graphics, better sound. But to be honest, I really do prefer F-19. I find the controls in F-117 a little more difficult to use. A little more clunky. It seems like some of the approachability of F 19 was a little bit lost. It's not a harder game, I would say. Uh, I mean, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, it's the same game remade a third time, but it's just lacking a little something that makes it just a little bit less great than F 19. That said, I would highly recommend you play either one of these should the opportunity arise so that's that thanks for all the great emails and for hanging on as i sort of get onto this new schedule and and back on track with all all that kind of stuff hoping that now i'm I'm back to it next time which i'm aiming to get done for the end of may i'm trying to like i said aim for the last tuesday of the month but realistically somewhere in that last week of the month would be uh kind of where to expect the next show uh we're gonna do Another dive back into strategy with Defender of the Crown. I know a ton of you have played this game, so let those emails fly to podcast at umbcast.com. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at MoyerMultimedia.com. Don't forget that if you enjoy the show, you can support me over at patreon.com slash umbcast every little bit helps a little dip since I sort of went on a bit of a hiatus. So, you know, let's, I'm hoping to get those, uh, those Patreon numbers back up to where they were pre-UM baby. Uh, you can check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast, uh, for the show on Twitter. You can find it at, uh, twitter.com slash umb show. Uh, you find the show on YouTube, at youtube.com slash umbcast where i put up videos of my game research sessions uh we also have a cool new trello board this is a new development since the last show where you can uh see what games i'll be covering soon and you can vote for games in the backlog all you need to do is create a free trello account and you can uh you can vote you can comment on cards if you have uh, you know Uh, some resources, some, some research stuff that you think might be helpful to me. You can post them in the cards on comments, kind of help me do a bit of my research for me. And you can most importantly, help me decide which games I'm going to be covering next. As always subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher radio. That is that. And I will see you next time for defender of the crown here in the upper memory block battle control terminated you've been listening to the upper memory block podcast with joe mastroianni for more information on the podcast visit umbcast.com that's umbcast.com write to joe today at podcast at umbcast.com That's podcast at umbcast.com
1: So what shall it be? Do you join the unity? Or do you die here?
0: Join.